Well, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about how easily it could have been if we were first century Jews to miss the Messiah. And if we're honest, how easy it can still be to miss his presence in our lives, even today. And I've noticed through this study that so much of this comes down to vision and perspective. Um, we can so easily let ourselves get kind of blinded that we miss the point of important stuff. And last week we talked about Mary. Last week we talked about Mary shocking a dinner party with her audacity as if she could see a future for Jesus that nobody else was seeing. Like her and Jesus were on some kind of different plane. And so as I was trying to think of an opener for my sermon tonight, I was thinking about vision. And I remember speaking to youth one time. And it was this room full of energetic, hormone-ridden teenagers. And so I was trying to come up with an opener that would be enthusiastic and fun and kind of rowdy. And so what I did was I picked a, an older high school boy, very athletic, good-looking kind of kid, and brought him up. And then I brought up kind of a young uh, middle schooler, a little bit um, self-conscious-looking type. And, and I had them engage in a foot race to the back of the sanctuary and back up to the front. And uh, the winner didn't surprise anybody. And as, uh, as the older kid was trying not to look too proud of himself for winning this race, I asked him if they would do it again, if they would race a second time. And uh, nobody saw the point, and I had to convince the middle schooler that it wasn't just to embarrass him. And I got him lined back up, and I said, on your mark. Get set! And then just about when they took off, I said, oh, hold on, I forgot the important part. And I had stashed a blindfold in my back pocket that I now flourished. And I pulled out, and I, assuming everybody understood the word picture, I securely fastened it to the bigger boy's head. And I lined him back up to race again. Uh, and I had completely and utterly underestimated that raw teenage competitive nature. And so I yelled, go, and the, the high school kid took off faster than he had the first time with no concern for his own safety. He tore down the center of the church, and he hit the back wall of the sanctuary at full speed, blowing a giant hole in the sheetrock on the back wall, bounced off, came tearing back up toward the front. The middle schooler was so shocked, he stopped to assess the damage, meaning he lost by an even bigger margin the first time, and I had to form tackle the high schooler to keep him from destroying every instrument on the stage. And the worst part of the whole thing was that they completely ruined my object lesson. So not only did I have a wall to repair, but I now had to try to convince the kids that vision was important, even though this young Brahma bull just proved otherwise. So tonight, no object lesson. You're going to have to take my word for it that vision is important. Our lectionary passage tonight is from John, and with this being Palm Sunday, we're right up against the arrest of Jesus. I don't know if you've been kind of tracking, but the way the lectionary works throughout Lent is you kind of go through Jesus' life and you step-by-step move closer to his passion. So tonight um, we are almost there. And this passage is a little bit long, so I'm going to let you stay seated as we read, but please listen with reverence to the word of God. When the time came, Jesus and his apostles sat down together at a table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink this wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table is a man who will... Okay, something just freaked out. Is a man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask one another, which of them would, be, would do such a thing? Then they began to argue amongst themselves about who would, who would be the greatest among them. Then Jesus told them, In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they're called friends of the people. But among you it will be be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So that when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three, you will deny three times you even know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag or extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now he said, take your money and your traveler's bag and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come that the prophecy about me to, to be fulfilled. He was counted amongst the rebels. Yes, everything about me, uh, written about me by the prophets, will come true. Lord, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That is enough, he said. Then Then accompanied by his disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray, so you would not give in to temptation. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw 
what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck the high priest, slave slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he said, that you have come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. This is the word of the Lord. Whew, that was a long one. <clears throat> I have to be honest, tonight's passage um, worked on me all week long. I have this routine uh, when I'm studying for a passage where on Sunday night or Monday morning, I read the passage five or six times, um, and I just write down a series of questions, things I want to know about the passage, things I want to study. I won't let myself look anything up. I won't let myself uh, search commentaries or uh, lexicons or anything. I just kind of set up how my study is going to go that I'll start Tuesday morning. And this reading actually has a second purpose that the ancient monks called the Lectio Divina, or the, the divine reading, or the spiritual reading. And it's, they used to say, you must always allow the passage to work on you before you work on the passage. And so it's a chance to just kind of let the, uh, to say, God, before I even try to figure out what you want to say to people about this, what do you want to say to me about this? And you allow the passage to work on you. And I have to be honest, I had trouble this week uh, leaving the Lectio time because this passage wouldn't quit working on me, and it still hasn't. So even though I often have to preach stuff that um, I don't feel qualified to talk to other people about, tonight is uh, even more. So if you hear an inordinate amount of hypocrisy coming from the pulpit tonight, uh, give me some grace because I struggle with this one. One thing that jumped out at me uh, this year as we did trace the progress of the lectionary was how easy it might have been um, for, for the disciples to miss him. But when you think about what they've seen, it feels the opposite. Like it feels like one catch of fish or a rabbinical call and some of them dropped everything to follow Jesus. They've seen a couple fish sandwiches feed an entire crowd. They've seen him reverse the flow of the Levitical clean and unclean process, where now instead of the unclean making the clean unclean, we're seeing the clean make the unclean clean. Say that ten times fast. We're, we've seen him heal the broken. We've seen him win over some crowds while miraculously escaping the rage of others. It feels like the entire story is them learning. We even had Peter declaring him to be the very son of God and, and Jesus applauding Peter for this declaration. It feels like the whole story is about his disciples getting closer and closer to him and figuring him out more and more and, until Holy Week. And when we get to Holy Week, it feels like everything falls apart. It feels like somehow they've missed the main point. It feels like they're somehow missing it. So let me show you what got me on this this week. When the time came, Jesus and his apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and giving thanks to God for it. Then he said, 
Take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some of the bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood, which is poured out for you as a sacrifice. But here at this table, sitting amongst me as as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays them, or him? We're super familiar with this passage. This is the Last Supper, and Jesus is instituting the Eucharist, or the Communion. And it's full of maybe some of the most impactful words in all of Scripture. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this together before I suffer. I'm about to be betrayed. For 2,000 years, people like me have performed a liturgy that they get from this passage. Millions of Christians have quoted this over bread and wine. And so this begs the question, how did the very first hearers of this great and impactful liturgy react? How did they respond to this? Then they began to argue amongst themselves about who among them should be the greatest. Whoops. Oh, I missed the last one. Wait, did I? Oh, yeah, sorry. This is how they responded. While Jesus is talking about his body being broken, his blood being poured out, his suffering his anguish that one of his own followers is about to go turncoat. His disciples are going, cool story, bro. So who do you think is going to be the general once we start this little revolutionary thing? Completely missed the point. He's laying out his own suffering future, and the disciples are missing it. Have you ever tried to talk seriously to a child like six or under? I... I Love. I talk to my kids fairly maturely, and I love to talk anyway. And so we'll get into these kind of lengthy philosophical or theological discussions with my kids all the time. And sometimes I forget who I'm talking to and will underestimate the philosophical capacity of some of my kids. And so I'll start talking over the head of some of the younger ones, and they'll just give me this glazed-over look. And a couple years ago, we fasted sweets as an entire family. And... Uh, after dinner, one of my kids came up. He was all straight-backed, and his eyebrows were furled like he had a serious question. And he said, uh, hey, Dad. I was like, yeah, bud. He was like, how come we fast, like, sugar and stuff? I was like, that's a great question. That's a great question, bud. So I kind of got down and looked him in his eyes, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's an excellent question, bud. The reason we fast is because I call it we're flexing our no muscles. Like, we choose something that's not terrible for us, and for a series of time we resist the urge to have that thing because one of these days something is going to, come up that we really should say no to. And if we haven't practiced the process of saying no to things, then we may not have the strength to actually do that when, it, when we really need to. And so we practice flexing our no muscles. Plus, when we think about some things like sugar that other people around the world may not have access to, and we resist those things for a little while, you know, maybe when we do start eating sugar again, we'll have more compassion on those that have less than us. So uh, so we just pick a period of time when we say no to something. It's not bad for us, but it gives us a chance to, to see what it's like to live without it. And he, he hadn't looked away the whole time. 
completely focused on me, didn't look even a bit distracted. He looked me right in my eyes and goes, I want a donut. <laughs> I realized I had talked right. He hadn't heard a word I said. I want a donut. And that's what I picture when I think of the disciples here, listening to this, to this liturgy that Jesus is laying out, this deep and impactful, heavy confession of what's about to happen. And they just don't get it. They just miss the point. And so once I was on that thread, I just couldn't let it go. They skip right over what he says. And so once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And I saw it everywhere in the passage. Here's another one. When Jesus, when they're asking him, who's, who's the most, uh, who's the greatest? Here's his answer. Among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. This is his answer to their who's going to be the greatest. He reveals that they've gone 180 degrees the wrong direction. They've completely missed the point. Let's look at another one, and this is a big one. Then Jesus asked, When I sent you out to preach the good news, and you did not have money or a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you want anything? No, they replied. But now he said, take your money and your traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me and the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That is enough, he said. This is one of the weirdest passages in all Scripture, because Jesus is telling them to go arm themselves. And they say, we have two swords, and he, which is not nearly enough for an insurrection. We have two swords. He's like, that's plenty. And, so it, it, and people throughout history have committed terrible violence using this scripture, that Christians are supposed to arm themselves now and bear their swords. But Jesus gives us the key to this passage. He actually gives us, he quotes to tell them exactly what he's talking about. For now has come, the time has come for the prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the, rep, the rebels. So Jesus refers directly to a prophecy that he seems to want to fulfill this night and apparently is going to need some props to do it. So it makes you think, what is that prophecy? So we go back to that prophecy. It comes directly from Isaiah 53. It says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So here's Jesus 
quoting directly from a messianic prophecy that about him being led like a sheep to the slaughter, not opening his mouth, unjustly condemned, dying for God's people, having done no wrong, making it possible that many should be counted righteous by bearing their sins. And how will you know this prophecy is coming to pass? Because he will be counted among rebels. The authorities will treat this like a rebellion. So Jesus is like, we're going to need a couple swords to help them sell their story. And the second Jesus kisses Judas, Peter gets it, right? He understands what's going on. He looks down at this prop in his hand and he says, ah, this looks like a rebellion. Now I see. Now we just let Jesus go like a sheep to the slaughter. That's not at all what he does. He pulls the sword, starts swinging it, and forces Jesus into an impromptu healing service for the man who came to arrest him. Peter completely missed the point. And to Peter's credit, those on the other side were just as lost. Jesus has to say to them, you know, why do you come like I'm some kind of criminal? Like, I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me at any point. They think they're picking up a troublemaker. They think they're, they're picking up somebody who's causing problems. And Jesus says this, but this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. They could have captured Jesus with a cartoon butterfly net because this moment was locked in history. This moment was determined. Jesus knew this moment was going to happen when Mary anointed him at Martha's party. Jesus knew this moment was going to happen when he was breaking bread and blessing the cup. And Jesus knew this moment was going to happen when he was praying in the garden, begging his father not to let it happen. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Jesus was in agony, sweating blood, because he knew this minute was com- this moment was coming. He was not stoic or impassive. He was tormented because of what he knew he was going to endure. And he knew the most extreme part of it was that his father was going to turn away from him as he bore sin. Jesus was afraid, but he was not ignorant. He knew what was coming. When he quoted Isaiah 53, it was the full knowledge, with the full knowledge of what that passage held. So as I studied through this passage this week, I could not stop seeing just how much everybody else in the story, good guys and bad guys, kept missing the point. The greatest drama ever playing out before human eyes, and nobody caught it. They were arguing over rank and making bold declarations about how faithful they were going to be. Sleeping through prayer and swinging swords around as Isaiah 53 and who knows how many other prophecies were being fulfilled right in front of their very eyes. And I would love to point the finger, but don't we do this too? I was praying through this verse and it, you guys remember the Chiefs game when we canceled church a couple months ago? We, uh, we had people over at our house and I sent out an email beforehand to let people know that our house would be primarily a social gathering, that we would have a TV on, but there would also be kids and distractions and social things happening. So if you're an avid fan and you're really into the game, you may not want to come here because the game won't be the central feature. And so some people came over and I hadn't watched a game all season. And suddenly I put the game on the TV, and I don't even know if I said hello to anybody. 
I just locked in. And if you were there, you saw me do it. I just stared at the TV the whole time like there was nobody in my house. And I woke up the next morning, and I was, I was deeply convicted about it. I confessed to my wife and a couple men because I had real human beings in my house, people who I love and pray for. And I somehow got so locked in to the game that I acted like they weren't even there. And I, I realized when I woke up the next morning that I had completely missed the point, that I completely missed it. And, it. and as that came back to me this week, I thought of how many times we do that. How many times our kids do something stupid and we completely lose our minds and treat them like they're the enemy. How often we miss the point. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is judging the goat nations, he doesn't get on to them for their church attendance or how many verses they can quote or whether they drink or smoke or cuss or gamble or dance. He said, you're being judged because you didn't love me. And they were like, when did we ever mistreat the Son of God? And his answer was, you have completely missed the point. When you do this to the least of them, you did it to me. And this is Lent, so it's supposed to be a little heavy, but this week as I kept getting beat up by this passage, there was one shining light that kind of I kind of clung to, and it's from Peter's denial passage. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And we're so crazy familiar with this verse. We talk about it all the time. Peter's boasting about his level of commitment. He's completely blind to what's going on or even what's going on in his own soul. We've heard a million sermons about Peter's denial and how Jesus walks with him on the beach and asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter's restoration to ministry. Peter's denial and Jesus' grace are major themes in our faith. But this week I saw a new wrinkle in this old story that I don't know that I'd ever really pulled out before. First, Jesus says, this is how this conversation started, actually. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. And I'm sure this is not new to anybody, but Jesus doesn't pray that Peter would be released from the, from the trial. He doesn't pray that he would somehow that Satan wouldn't pick on him. He just prays that he'll hold strong while Satan does. And that's cool, but that's not what got me this week. So, when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Did you realize that Jesus didn't just predict Peter's denial? He also re- predicted his repentance? There's no, like, if you repent. It's when you repent. Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you're going to get the crap kicked out of you, and you're going to make a fool out of yourself with a sword, and you're going to run like a scared child. After that, no worries. Get back up. We've got work to do. You're going to need to comfort your brothers. They're going to need encouragement. Doesn't miss a beat. Jesus knows Peter's going to fall, and he knows he's going to get back up. And the most beautiful thing about this entire passage is that while everybody else is getting it wrong, while everybody else is missing the point, while everybody else is blowing it, Jesus is not freaking out. Jesus isn't going, are you guys kidding me? If you don't tune in, you're going to mess this whole thing up. 
Jesus knows they're going to blow it. And he's already planning their restoration. So how do we respond to this? What if we truly learn to make beauty from ashes? We live so much of our lives driven by fear. We have all the normal fears like not having enough or losing what we do have. Added to the fears of not being enough. And of course we always fear getting hurt. We fear suffering. And one of the things I love about Lent is Lent gives us the opportunity to lean into those fears a little bit, to challenge them. We fear lack. So instead of living in that fear, we choose lack for about 40 days. We choose to go without. We fear suffering, so for 46 days, we suffer on purpose as if to say suffering is not so tough. Lent is the season when we face all of our failures and own our sins so that at the end of that season, we can watch them hang on a cross as we celebrate resurrection. But my favorite thing about Lent is that it always reminds us that death precedes resurrection. Paul talked about a kernel of wheat being this perfect little symmetrical engine of creativity. And unless it is buried and dies and cracks open and is ruined, it doesn't bring forth any more more life. But if it does go through that, it multiplies life all over the place. We tend to want the resurrection before the death. Even though most of us know that the most growth we ever undergo is the times when something in us dies. Something in our theology dies. Something in our life dies. the, The way we thought things were supposed to go die. And when we get back up and we find out that God still loves us and we still have Jesus and he still has a future for us, we finally know resurrection. So what if the last week of Lent, Holy Week, these last seven days, we flip the questions? See, the, same, the strange thing about Jesus' prayer in the garden is that he's sweating blood. He is in torment and nothing has happened yet. None of his torment has actually started yet. Earlier, he calls this counting the cost. He says, count the cost, take up your cross and follow me. He says, think ahead of time about how hard this could be. Plan on that ahead of time. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's he's counting the cost in the garden. As he's praying, he's saying, am I ready for what's going to happen? So what if instead of What if I fail? We flip the question to, when I fail, how will I get up and use it for good? What if instead of, what if I sin, we asked, when I sin, how will I repent and get up and encourage my brothers and sisters? I've always said that contentment is a matter of perspective that every single one of us can find somebody in our life that has more than us and we can go man if I just had that much I would be happy 
And every single one of us has somebody who has less than us. And we can look at them and say, I am so blessed. And our level of commitment will always depend on which person we choose to focus on. We get to choose our contentment. I still believe that, but this week as I was preparing for this message, I felt like God was saying, what if you didn't worry about which one you were looking at and tried to figure out how to be a blessing to both of them? What if instead of, what if God doesn't answer my prayers, we join Jesus in the garden and decided to ask, how will I submit to his will and be a blessing to the world, even if he doesn't answer my prayers? Beauty from ashes. That is who we are supposed to be. My wife shared a story with me this week that I want to share in closing. It's about a woman named Mary Johnson Roy. Mary's son was shot and killed in 1993 by a 16-year-old man named Oshaya Israel. Oshaya was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Not long later, in her mourning, Mary read a poem called Two Mothers by an unknown author. It's about these two mothers that meet in heaven. They spark up a conversation and find that they're both mothers of sons who had tragic stories. They empathetically share what it was like to watch their sons grow up and be so hopeful for their futures. The fears that came with watching them gain independence and become men. And the excruciating pain of seeing their sons' lives come to a tragic end. Finally, Mary introduces herself toward the end of the poem and the other mother, realizing who she was talking to, kneels in honor and the poem ends with Mary lifting her new friend up as her friend confesses that she's Judas Iscariot's mom Mary Johnson said as she read this poem something in her broke and she knew what she had to do so she went to the prison to meet O'Shea Israel and she opened the conversation by saying I don't know you and you don't know me You didn't know my son, and he didn't know you. So I guess we better start by getting to know each other. They talked for hours, and when she was prepared to leave, O'Shea asked her if if he could have a hug. So she hugged him, and she said she went to her car and wept because she had just hugged the man who killed her son. But she said that was the moment she began to feel her heart heal. Through O'Shea, Mary met his mom, and the two struck up a friendship as they ministered to each other in their loss. When O'Shea was released from prison after 17 years, he said he came out with two moms instead of one. The two mothers started a ministry that they called Death to Life, and they support families which are affected by gun violence both the families of the shooters and the families of the victims. And they worked to connect the two sides because both sides were wounded in the violence. And because they believe that that's the only way to truly bring life from death. So my question tonight is, what if instead of fearing every little death, we actually learn to look forward to the resurrection that's on the other side.